Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode about writing fiction, both short stories and novels. This is Jim Thayer. I'd like to talk today about one of our most important tools as writers, and that is the use of contrast. As you know, to contrast is to compare two things to show their differences. The novelist Raymond Obstfeldt says, putting contrasting elements next to each other tends to emphasize each work. Putting similar elements next to each other tends to blend them together. Uh, Contrast, of course, is, is used in many fields. For example, the painting The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh uses a big contrast between the blue sky and the yellow stars. And this contrast creates uh, a sense of energy in the painting, and it makes the painting seem alive. In architecture, the Sydney Opera House uses contrast, a color contrast between the white sails and the the red brick foundation. The, The sails seem light and airy and belong belong to the air, while the brick foundation is heavy and belongs to the earth. Uh, contrast, of course, is used in music. Queen's song, Bohemian Rhapsody. There's a, a vivid tempo contrast between the slow ballad-like verses and the fast rock music chorus. Uh, In movies, contrast is used, of course. In the Batman movie, The Dark Knight, the city of Gotham is usually shown as being dark, while the interiors, especially the Batcave, are brightly lit. The contrast creates a sense of suspense in the film. Fear is outside, hope is inside. In fiction, in our writing, contrast is... A critical tool, and it can be used in a lot of different ways. Let's talk about how we writers can use contrast. Here are elements in our novel where contrast will make things sharper and more distinct. A contrast between characters. Our characters should be different from one another. Uh, in Anne of Green Gables, uh, there's a contrast between Anne and the adopting mother Marilla. Anne is a is a bubbly dreamer, and Marilla is down to earth. It's a wonderful contrast that displays each of their personalities. In the series, the Master and Commander series by Patrick O'Brien, Jack Aubrey is a ferocious warrior, while Stephen Maturin is is a contemplative physician. The contrast works to sharpen both of their. Uh, characters. Uh, In Neil Gaiman's novel Neverwhere, Richard Mayhew is kind and he's puzzled and he's in over his head. The character Dor is concise and tough and she's an expert at surviving in the underworld. In The Lord of the Rings, Frodo is introspective and an intellectual while Sam is practical with day-to-day concerns. Uh, In The Kite Runner, Amir is wealthy and courageous and outgoing. Hassan is quiet and reserved and uh, much more tentative. 
The authors of these novels use contrast to sharpen and make distinct their characters. You put two of them together, and each one shines. Contrast can be used in settings. Uh, in Oliver Twist, Charles Dickens contrasts the wealth and luxury of the upper class with the poverty and the squalor of the, of the lower class in the slums. In uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, she contrasts the sterile environment of Gilead with the lush forests outside. And this contrast emphasizes the uh, protagonist's longing for freedom. Uh, Stieg Larsson in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, he contrasts the cold and harsh Swedish countryside with the warmth and comfort of Lisbeth's apartment. In The Great Gatsby, there's wealthy East Egg, and there's the poor neighborhood of, of working-class people, which is called the Valley of Ashes. It's a, an area of ash and smoke. Uh, uh, this is... Uh, the author, this is the Valley of Ashes, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke, and finally, with a trans transcendent effort of men who move dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air. That's, uh, of course, F. Scott Fitzgerald. What wonderful writing. And he is using contrast between the wealthy East Egg and the Valley of Ashes. Contrast can also be used between scenes, between the pace of scenes. Uh, not even in a thriller or horror, horror novel should every scene have a, a fast pace and uh, not in a romance should every scene be slow and romantic. J.R.R. Tolkien uses contrast in the pace of uh, subsequent scenes to create a sense of suspense and excitement. For example, the scene where Frodo and Sam are crossing the river Anduin is slow and methodical. Uh, they carefully make their way across this treacherous water. Uh, but this scene is followed by the scene where they're attacked by Shelob, a giant spider. And this scene is, is much faster paced and made more exciting compared to the earlier scene. In The Hunger Games, Suzanne Collins, uh, the scene where Katniss Everdeen volunteers to take her younger sister's place in The, in the Hunger Games is slow and quiet, uh, without an immediate threat. But then she's forced to fight to the death in a fast, physical scene. The author is using contrast to emphasize the pace of both scenes. In The Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Solinger, in one scene, Holden Caulfield sits in his room thinking about his life and contemplating suicide. Uh, the scene is quiet and slow. And this scene is followed by a scene where he gets drunk with his friends. Everything's rowdy and fun. You can also use contrast in the substance of a scene. For example, romance followed by tension. Uh, in Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, Bella and Edward share a romantic kiss in the woods, but their happiness is 
interrupted by the arrival of a vampire who threatens to kill Bella. Bella and Edward are kissing in the woods, and then they're interrupted by a vampire. What could be worse? And then there are smaller technical things where contrast can be used. For example, in sentence length. Here's uh, an example from Mario Puzo's The Godfather. The judge, a formidably heavy-featured man, rolled up the sleeves of his black robe as if to physically chastise the two young men standing before the bench. His face was cold with majestic contempt. Uh, Puzo's got a long sentence followed by a shorter sentence. The shorter sentence is, is like a drumbeat. It's a punch compared to the earlier one. It makes both sentences uh, more lively. Another uh, technical way we can use contrast is in paragraph length. Short paragraphs mixed in with long paragraphs. Uh, we want to avoid consecutive big chunky paragraphs on the page because they're daunting. And a big long paragraph, just looking at it without reading it, doesn't look very interesting. But if we've got a, a lot of short paragraphs, they look sort of flighty. So we mix them together, short paragraphs and long paragraphs. One area where we probably shouldn't use contrast is in our chapter lengths. Uh, readers quickly learn to accommodate our chapter lengths. They might say, ah, I'll read one more chapter, then turn out the light. We probably don't want to mix up a three-page chapter and uh, followed by a 20-page chapter. Uh, I'm not sure about this, about this, but those are my thoughts. The main thought, though, is in every chance we get, we should use contrast. The difference between elements of our novel will, meet, will make each element stand out and be sharp and be distinctive. What's our main job as writers? It's not to educate our readers, uh, though a story can do that. It's not to deliver an important message, though a, a story can do that too. Our main job as writers is to entertain the readers. If we know that, then our goal is clear. Give the readers things that fascinate and engage them. A main way of entertaining a reader is to create compelling characters, and an, an important component of that is the description of the characters, the physical description. When we create a character using strong observations and odd elements and lovely writing, it's vastly entertaining for readers. I just had to stop myself and pause this recording. My cat Jack has a new thing. He goes to the edge of the desk and hunches like he's about to jump to the floor, and then he waits for me to lift him down. I don't know how this started, but I'm left with lifting a cat to the floor a dozen times a day. Jack has me trained like a circus dog. I'm not sure that's how life should work, but that's my life. Back to writing. Regarding character descriptions, here's what we want to avoid. He was of middle height with brown hair and brown eyes. Or this. She was tall and thin, and her eyes were blue. Character description is where we writers can strut our stuff. Uh, 
And a physical description is a discrete, standalone task, and so we can focus our talent and not worry about the rest of the task ahead. We can take the time and use our talent to, to paint an enchanting portrait of our character. And not only will good character descriptions help us learn how to do it, they'll also inspire us. And we aren't the only writers inspired by good fiction. J.K. Rowling was inspired to write her Harry Potter series after reading C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And Stephen King was inspired to write Carrie after reading Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Margaret Atwood was inspired to write The Handmaid's Tale after reading 1984 by George Orwell. So let's look for inspiration and for techniques to describe our characters from the masters. Here is Mark Twain in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Listen to how Mark Twain does it. He was most 50 and he looked it. His hair was long and tangled and greasy and hung down and you could see his eyes shining through like he was behind vines. It was all black, no gray. So was his long mixed up whiskers. There weren't no color in his face where his face showed. It was white, not like another man's white, but a white to make a body sick. A white to make a body's flesh crawl. A tree-toed white. A fish-belly white. As for his clothes, just rags. That was all. He had one ankle resting on the other knee. The boot on that foot was busted, and two of his toes stuck through, and he worked them now and then. His hat was laying on the floor, an old black slouch with the top caved in like a lid. Isn't that wonderful writing? Doesn't Twain paint a picture for us? If I could write like that, I would. Here is Thomas Wolfe in Look Homeward, Angel. My brother Ben's face, thought Eugene, is like a piece of slightly yellow ivory. His high white head is knotted fiercely by his old man's scowl. His mouth is like a knife, his smile the flicker of light across a blade. His face is like a blade and a knife and a flicker of light. It is delicate and fierce and scowls beautifully forever. And when he fastens his hard white fingers and his scowling eyes upon a thing he wants to fix, he sniffs with sharp and private concentration through his long pointed nose. His hair shines like that of a young boy. It is crinkled and crisp as lettuce. Here is... John Knowles from a separate piece. For such an extraordinary athlete, even as a lower middler, Phineas had been the best athlete in the school. He was not spectacularly built. He was my height, five eight and a half inches. He weighed 150 pounds, a galling 10 pounds more than I did, which flowed from his legs to his torsal shoulders to arms and full strong neck in an uninterrupted, emphatic unity of strength. Here is J.K. Rowling, her description of Mr. Dursley. He was a big, beefy man with hardly any neck, although he did have a very long mustache. 
Mrs. Dursley was thin and blonde and had nearly twice the usual amount of neck, which came in very useful as she spent so much of her time craning over garden fences, spying on the neighbors. And that's a description of both Mr. and Mrs. Dursley, and her, here is her description of Hagrid. A giant of a man was standing in the doorway. His face was almost completely hidden by a long, shaggy mane of hair and a wild, tangled beard, but you could make out his eyes glinting like black beetles under all the hair. And here's James Lee Burke in Wayfaring Stranger. Dalton Weishart's appearance was deceptive. When we walked out on the veranda, he was dozing in a sway-backed straw chair, his booted feet up on the rail, a battered cowboy hat over his face, his body half in shadow. One of his aides touched him on the shoulder and told him we were there. His face was as plain as a bowl of porridge. The nose was bulbous and pitted, the teeth long, the bottom lip protruding as though snuff were tucked inside it. He wore khakis and a long-sleeved denim shirt and wide suspenders, and he had a stomach that made me think of piled bread dough. He took a dark blue handkerchief out of his pocket and blew his nose into it. Here is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's description of Gandalf. He was a large, imposing man with a thick black beard and a booming voice. He had a scar across his cheek, and his eyes were a fierce dark brown. He was dressed in a long black coat and a wide-brimmed hat, and he carried a heavy cane. These wonderful descriptions of characters uh, offering detail in lovely language do two things. They make me a better writer for reading them, and they make me want to try it myself. Maybe I can create such wonderful images for readers, Maybe these descriptions have the same effect on you. Let's change this subject and talk about how to keep the point of view tight. Uh, point of view, of course, is simply who is seeing the action, whose mind is the reader in. I'd like to talk about uh, how Sarah Gruen, in her wonderful novel, Water for Elephants, does this. Water for Elephants, uh, if you haven't read it, I sure suggest you do. There's magic on every page of that novel. The novel is a first-person novel. The reader is always in the narrator Jacob Jankowski's mind. Jacob talks to the reader using words such as I, me, and mine. Uh, and that it is a first-person novel is evident in the first sentence, which is, only three people were left under the red and white awning of the grease joint. Grady, me, and the fry cook. Note the word me. Right away, the reader knows we are in Jacob's head, hearing his thoughts. Technically, the reader can't visit other characters' minds. Not in a first-person novel. So how does Sarah Grun show us what the other characters are thinking? By having Jacob observe them. Here's how she does it, and notice we're always inside Jacob's mind. We never leave his mind. This is from the novel. They glanced from side to side, with hats pulled low and hands thrust deep in their pockets. 
What the author is showing, without leaving Jacob's mind, is that these men uh, who are waiting for the cooch tent to open, they're embarrassed and anxious. And she does that by telling us their hats are pulled low and their hands are thrust deep in their pockets. Here's how she tells us that the girls were astonished. If she were just to write the girls were astonished, it would leave Jacob's mind. Here's what Sarah Grun does. The girls stare at me with open mouths. That shows her astonished. It's an observation from Jacob. Here is uh, another sentence of showing that McGuinty was angry. McGuinty pushed himself upright, sending his wheelchair flying backwards. So we know without leaving Jacob's mind, McGuinty's angry. Here is uh, how uh, Sarah Grun shows us that someone is trying to reclaim his dignity. Someone else, not the, not the first person narrator, narrator. He straightens his shirt, lifts his grizzled chin, and crosses his arms in front of him. Here is how she tells us that something is settled in August's mind, without visiting August's mind. August stares at Silver Star and exhales through puffed cheek. Here's how uh, Jacob lets us readers know that the character, the other character, wonders about him, then relents. He squints at me, then nods. Here's how Jacob lets the reader know that this character doesn't think much of him. Will looks at me, then turns and spits out the door. Here is how Jacob lets us know the character doesn't think he's worth anything to the circus, doesn't think Jacob's worth anything. He scrutinizes me, shoots an oyster of dark brown tobacco juice out the side of his mouth, and goes back inside. Isn't that terrific? We learn that that character uh, doesn't like and doesn't respect Jacob, but we don't visit the character's mind. We can't. We're permanently inside Jacob's mind. Uh, here's how Jacob lets us know the, the other character is not going to do what he wants. He looks up at me, arms crossed firmly in front of him. That's Jacob's observation. Here's how Jacob lets us know that another character is thinking and wondering what to do about Jacob. He drums his fingers, surveying me. That's Jacob's observation, and it tells, it shows the reader what the other character's thinking. Uh, here is uh, Earl, another character, wondering what's going on. Jacob observes him. Earl's brow creases. When you write Earl's brow creases, it means Earl's wondering. We don't have to visit Earl's mind. Here uh, are, uh, here's Jacob showing us what August and Uncle Al are thinking. They're wondering. August and Uncle Al exchange glances. That means they're thinking, coming to a conclusion. Here is uh, August thinks, the, Jacob lets the reader know what August is thinking, and that's uh, that August thinks Jacob's doing something funny. August peers down at me, grinning, his hair blowing in the wind.
Here is Jacob letting us know everyone else is wondering. All eyes are trained on me. Here's Jacob knowing, uh, uh, rather showing us that she doesn't like him. Every one of her pinched features hardens. Isn't that great? We learn exactly what that character thinks of him when her pinched features harden. Here is Jacob showing us that Uncle Al is angry without visiting Uncle Al's mind. Damn it, Uncle Al shouts, Uncle Al shouts, stabbing his cane into the earth. Here is uh, Jacob showing us that the crowd doesn't want anything to do with this. They shrug, mumble, and avert their eyes. This is a first-person novel. Jacob, we can't leave his mind, but he's going to show us that Kinko doesn't like him. Kinko stares straight at me, his jaw moving grimly side to side. Here is Jacob telling us that August is thinking. August pauses, tapping his pursed lips. Uh, A couple more. Here is uh, Jacob showing us that another character is angry. His eyes narrow to slits. And here is Jacob showing us, without visiting, uh, without visiting Marlena's mind, that Marlena is embarrassed. She looks into her lap, blushing. That just shows us she's embarrassed. These seem like small things, the blushing and tapping pursed lips and the others, but they're important because this is a first-person novel. The reader can't enter anyone's mind to understand what they're thinking, except the narrator, narrator's mind, Jacob's. So, uh, Sarah Grun, the author, lets us readers know what other characters are thinking by having Jacob observe them. We know Marlena is embarrassed because Jacob sees her blush. We know someone is angry uh, because Jacob sees uh, that character's eyes narrow. In each of these examples, the reader learns what another character is thinking without ever leaving Jacob's mind. Uh, And what's more, these examples show the reader with something to watch what the character is thinking. After visiting Middle Earth, the the Mississippi River, and the circus, we've come to the end of our episode. I hope to see you next time, and until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.